This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com. Welcome to the Data Center Knowledge Podcast. We are in uh, Digital Realty Trust offices in San Francisco on beautiful Embarcadero. We have with us Bill Stein. He's the CEO of Digital Realty, former CFO, and um, he's been with the company since the very, very beginning. Um, Bill, thank you very much for agreeing to chat with us. Absolutely. You have probably uh, a historical perspective on the industry that uh, many people don't. We're going to try to pick your brain a little bit about uh, some of the uh, key moments in, in, in this development. There was the dot-com bust. Some uh, lots of data center properties went down in price, and um, I believe the story is uh, a former um, investment company um, that later formed Digital Realty Trust bought some of those properties. Um, so can you kind of talk about that and then uh, the subsequent birth of, of Digital Realty? Um, and also maybe talk a little bit about how you ended up in the data center industry. Sure. So uh, I think it was 2001, which was uh, when dot-com was still going more or less strong. Uh, CalPERS put out an RFP uh, looking for firms to bid uh, at the convergence of real estate and technology. It was a, a broad mandate it wasn't particularly well-defined. It was basically whatever good ideas a firm might have. And so uh, C.B. Richard Ellis Investors won that mandate from CalPERS. And uh, uh, the gentleman at C.B. that, that uh, led that initiative was Rick Magnuson. And uh, he named his firm GI Partners. And GI Partners Fund One consisted of $500 million from CalPERS and $25 million from C.B. Richard Ellis, investor C.B. Young. And roughly two-thirds of that money was invested in hard assets, data centers. And buying uh, data centers post-dot-com crash, uh, which is really what happened, allowed uh, GI and, and CalPERS to, to buy, you know, at very attractive cap rates, double-digit uh, cap rates, which are, is basically the, uh, the NOI yield over purchase price. And so GI collected, uh, you know, roughly 20 of those, or maybe a little more than 20. And uh, the decision was made uh, to provide an exit for the private equity firm via the public markets. And so uh, GI took its portfolio of 20-some-odd of data centers, and some of those were office buildings too, and took them public. Uh, and the um, IPO was priced in, in late 2004 at, uh, at $12 a share. The company was worth something in the neighborhood of $700, $800 million. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of how I became involved, I mean, first of all, there's nothing about my uh, previous 
or at least early background educational or career that would lead you to believe that data centers was the obvious choice. Uh, I majored in, in uh, Greek and Latin in college and uh, started out life as a, as a litigator, a trial lawyer. Hmm. Um, but I, I did get my business degree at night and uh, um, migrated from litigation to transaction work as an attorney and then went over to the business side. Yeah, and first as the treasurer of an electric utility in Pittsburgh, and then I worked for a company called Westinghouse Credit on the deal side, putting money out, and uh, made my way to San Francisco as the CFO of a REIT uh, in 1995 by the name of Trinet Corporate Realty Trust, Triple Net REIT. Um, so I would say the, uh, and actually the Trinet's banker uh, on its IPO uh, was Rick Magnuson at Merrill Lynch. <laughs> so I, that's, that's really the connection. I, I knew Rick from my Trinet days, from when he was a banker. And uh, he asked me to come on board at, at GI in early 2004. Actually, I think it was late 2003. But we finally joined in early 2004 to uh, uh, help facilitate the IPO from the uh, CFO position. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's true um, for m many people in the data center industry um, who came to it without, you know, they, they didn't pursue a career in the data center industry from the get-go, you know, from college. Um, people kind of just at some point end up, learn about it and end up in the industry. I think that's right. I mean, there's, they're, they're one of two industries I think you would uh, be in in order to be part of the data center industry. One is commercial real estate. The other is the telecom world, the fiber world. And uh, I think if you look at Equinix down the street in Redwood City, you know, most of their uh, employees come from the uh, telecom side. But a fairly high preponderance of ours are from real estate, although we have certainly some from uh, the, the telecom and networking side as well. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk about another key point in history of the industry, the 2008 crisis. Um, can you talk about the impact it had on the data center industry uh, in general and then specifically on digital realty? Well, I think the uh, that capital crisis, uh, sometimes called the, the Great Recession, um, resulted in uh, a paucity of capital. And as a result of that, the uh, data center sector was not oversupplied at that time. I mean, it, it started to get fairly hot after we IPO'd and development began 2006. So it certainly probably had the potential to get overheated. But, uh, and there were actually a number of portfolios that came to market pre-crisis at uh, fairly high prices that, that we didn't bid on because we thought they were too rich. But the, um, the, the financial crisis uh, uh, caused those prices to come down quite a bit. I mean, expectations needed to change. And we actually bought several of those portfolios uh, post-crisis at, again, very attractive cap rates, double-digit cap rates. And, uh, you know, we, we were in the unique position of, of having um, a very strong balance sheet coming into the crisis. Um, I mean, with, with my financial background and 
having gone through a few uh, financial disruptions in the past, I think you always have to manage your balance sheet, um, not only defensively, but with the recognition that uh, when that next crisis happens, you want to be in a position to take advantage. And just to clarify for our listeners, this was um, you at the time were a CFO. I was a CFO, right. And, uh, the company's uh, CEO was Mike Faust. Right, right. Okay. And, and Scott Peterson was our head of acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that's what happened. We we uh, we were able to uh, buy assets just as we did pre-IPO and post-IPO somewhat, I'd say somewhat on the cheap. So you guys were basically one of the very few companies around that had the capital Exactly. To take advantage of the situation. Exactly. And actually, what's interesting is uh, we had begun the process um, at that time to go through the rating agencies to see if we could get investment grade debt ratings. And in fact, the day we were scheduled to see either Moody's or S&P was the, the day that Lehman Brothers went under. <laughs> so uh, we called and asked if we could reschedule. <laughs> and they, they obviously accepted because, you know, Wall Street was in a state of crisis at that point. But we came back a few months later and uh, we were able to get triple uh, B, BWA2 investment grade ratings from the agencies. We're still the only data center company to have, uh, public data center company to have investment grade ratings. And uh, and that stood us in very good stead. I mean, not, not only does it give you less expensive debt capital, but there are times when uh, the high yield market's not available, and the um, the regular investment grade market is open. So that that allowed us to continue to grow the the company without exception. So you know, from 2000, basically since our IPO, um, we've had growth every year in our in our uh, FFO per share and our dividends, mm -hmm. and that that includes this this period and in 2008-2009 when a, a number of REITs had to basically recapitalize and, and issue equity at uh, very discounted prices relative to where they had been trading, probably a discount to what's called the net asset value in the, in the REIT world. And, uh, and they had to cut their dividend materially. Sometimes they eliminated their dividend. But we, we just kept on going. And I think that's a comment on the, on the data center uh, industry as well in that I think the, uh, the demand is, is really driven by uh, secular factors as, as opposed to uh, uh, cyclical. Can you t uh, maybe elaborate on uh, those secular factors? What, what are the key ones that drive demand in this industry? Yeah, oh, sure. So, I mean, I think today um, it's cloud. You can see that in our customer base. It's uh, it's uh, the social networking firms. Um, you can see that in our customer base as well. We list our top 20 customers in our SEC filing. It's uh, mobility. So uh, you, you had me shut down my cell phone before we started, in part because it would be probably pinging with a bunch of uh, yeah. messages coming across the whole time. Um, it's, uh, and it's also big data and, and Internet of Things. Which is, and I think we're at the very beginning of, of IoT and... Uh, and, uh, and big data. And that's, that's really the wonderful thing about this business is there have been waves of, of technology disruption and change that have continued to expand the demand for our product. And, uh, 
it's, it's really the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, I guess it's, it's um, counter, counterintuitive in a way um, you'd think that uh, you know, if the technology industry um, hits uh, a trouble spot, you know, it would affect the center space as well. But, uh, but I, I assume that you're on Facebook. Right. Almost everybody is. Yeah. Um, I don't think people shrink the number of photographs they put on Facebook based on uh, you know maybe losing their job. In fact, they probably are on Facebook more at that point because they have more time available. And so, and that's just an example. But you know, there's always, there seems to be more and more data that has to be stored. That's plain and simple. And then uh, what's what's happened? Over the last several years, is uh, you know finding ways to analyze that data in a meaningful way, and then so, moving that data. Right. So, uh, so let's talk about that. The, um, you know, there's a huge um, hyperscale cloud boom happening right now um, over the past several years, uh, maybe over the past two, two to three years. And correct me if I'm wrong, but. Uh, all of the big hyperscale uh, cloud platforms have been gobbling up real estate. For data centers um, in Ashburn, in uh, in Silicon Valley, um, now more recently in Dallas and also Chicago, um, and overseas as well. You know, Singapore um, seems to be doing really well in Hong Kong, uh, and Japan. You guys recently uh, launched a data center in Osaka, uh, which was 100% uh, leased on day one. Yeah, before it was before it was commissioned, it was 100% leased. Yeah. So um, it's a good business. <laughs> so t talk about that. Um, how is this? You know, are we in the early innings? Um, is this the new normal? You know, 20 megawatt deals by Microsoft. Uh, where do you see this uh, this going? I think it's going to be a, a variety, a mix there. So uh, I think there will be large deals by the major cloud providers. I think that they'll also be, be doing smaller deals in edge markets and, and for network nodes. But small could still be a couple of megs, you know, maybe starting at a half, growing to two or three. Um, I think you'll see uh, enterprise software, traditional enterprise software firms that are in the cloud um, um, doing deals that aren't as large as a Microsoft or an Amazon, but still plenty large. And that's that's a big opportunity. It seems. It has been a large. It's been a big opportunity for us. If you, again, if you look at our published list of customers, IBM's our largest customer. Oracle, I think, is number four this last quarter. So um, you can you can see that just in our published data. Mm -hmm. Who are the top five? Just uh, to to tell our our listeners. Do you have, um, it's. Uh, IBM is number one, CenturyLink number two, I think Equinix is number three, Oracle is four, Facebook five, Facebook five, yeah. Okay. So, so that's uh, pretty representative because you have, right. you've got cloud, you've got networking, you have networking there. Yeah. You know, I think you'd find uh, AT&T and Verizon, I think, are in our top ten, so other networking companies. Um, LinkedIn was up there. Other part of Microsoft, um, Uber is maybe top fifteen. That's you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that kind of paints, I think, uh, a pretty clear picture of uh, who's, but, who's but, buying lots of data think, center space right I now. I think you'd also find that J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley are our top twenty. So financial services are, are big consumers of the product as well. Because they are ex expanding tremendously their digital infrastructure, and they're becoming technology companies. I, you know, I've, I've heard that uh, one of those firms refers to themselves as a as a high tech or technology company that happens to deliver financial service products. Right. Yeah, I heard that too. But the technology is their competitive edge. Yeah. Um, so Equinix, um, I'm curious about your uh, thoughts. There, they are uh, one of your biggest customers, as you just said. Um, can you talk about, they, they did um, a huge acquisition in Europe last year of uh, Telecity. Um, can you talk about that deal? Um, what were your thoughts at the time? Um, were you guys pursuing a similar deal um, around the same time? And what, what effect um, that deal um, is, is now having on, on the market as a whole? So interesting history on that deal. Um, Interaction had uh, was initially uh, engaged to marry Telecity. Um, they had a, an agreement in place, and uh, Equinix came in with a, a topping bid. So they, they broke up the uh, the interaction uh, Telecity bid. Um, the European Commission got into the uh, you know paid a lot of attention to it because of. Uh, some uh, concentration issues in key markets. And so um, the, uh, f in effect, the, the antitrust uh, function within the European community caused uh, Equinix to divest eight assets because of market concentration. They forced the divestiture, divestiture of five properties in London, two in Amsterdam, and one in Frankfurt. Um, they further required Equinix to sell to someone that would be a financially viable competitor, and they forced them to close by date certain. They gave them the date. And that was very good for us. Right. You guys were the, the buyer. I mean, we weren't the only, we, we were the buyer, but we weren't the only firm bidding to buy it. Mm -hmm. And Equinix was allowed to break it up into three different packages. And there were buyers for that for each package separately. But we were, because they were forced to buy, or rather to sell by a date certain, which I think was July 1 of last year, um, they knew that we could close and would close. I mean, we may not buy at the highest price, and we don't buy at the highest price, but we have a a good-sized revolving credit facility, and we had absolutely the wherewithal to do it. And um, uh, once we sign a contract to purchase a piece of property, I don't think we've ever not performed as part of our reputation in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So they might not have liked the idea of selling to us as a potential competitor, but they they knew that the deal would close. So we were able, we were able to. to buy it at a very attractive price, 13 times. I think they paid for the uh, Telecity at 15 times. So, you know, obviously a discount to what, what they had purchased uh, the, the uh, Telecity assets for. And um, it allowed us, more importantly, to strategically to get into the uh, interconnection and co-location uh, business in, uh, in those three markets, London, Amsterdam, and Frankfurt, uh, far more quickly 
than we would have if we had uh, gone about it on an organic basis. Hmm. We had uh, acquired Telex the year before, which is really the second second leading player after Equinix in co-location in the U.S. So interesting dynamic there, right? Equinix, um, by doing this deal, they um, kind of enabled a major competitor in Europe um, for themselves. But they had, you know, the, their hand was forced by the regulators. Right. They didn't have a lot of choice. Right. The, the one thing I think they, they felt comfortable in with us, in addition to our capacity close, is they, they know that we're a rational competitor, just as they are. So um, that we wouldn't be competing on price, basically. We'd compete on uh, the quality of the product that we brought to the market. Telex, Telecity, um, there is this big cloud boom that's happening. Um, sounds like you guys are really busy right now. Um, how is that going? You know, and what's it like integrating these two uh, big portfolios um, across two continents, um, trying to expand at the same time in Asia and uh, compete for these uh, big, crazy cloud deals here in the U.S.? Well, I think we're not as busy at Equinix because they're, uh, they're integrating companies on three continents. Right. But uh, um, yeah, I think that the Telex integration is in a, in a good place. We acquired Telex in 2015. And except for the accounting systems, um, which should be done this year, uh, the rest of that deal is, is fully integrated. All the uh, operating synergies have been achieved. We're well on our way to achieving really in interesting revenue synergies. So I think this, that one's put to bed. And we're working on what we call the Equicity um, integration. So Equicity, obviously a combination of Telecity and Equinex. Its code name in the marketplace was Cheetah. And uh, that platform, plus what Equinex was purchased, was initially going to be bought by Interaction. Then Equinex had it under contract. And then Equinex was carved out those eight assets. So you had a group of people that um, didn't really know where they belong from an organizational standpoint, whether they're going to be with Interaction, Equinex, or someone to be named later. And then on the to be named later, could have been anybody. Um, but we, we were very good home for, for those people because we didn't have a co-location business in Europe. So we retained most of them. Um, and in fact, the, the person that was running that platform for Equinex is now running uh, our EMEA platform out of London. Mm -hmm. And um, a large number of the people that were on his team have uh, important jobs um, you know, in our EMEA platform. So I think that one's, that one's running quite well too. I mean, there's systems is always, is I think generally the one piece of these integrations that uh, takes longer and lags. And, you, you might underestimate the amount of time and money it takes almost inevitably that it, to, to, to get that part of it right. But, what, uh, what do you mean by systems? Uh, IT systems. Okay, see. Yeah. You know, because it's you know, different accounting systems than what we run, different invoicing systems. So, but that, that's, that's coming together too. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, think we're, I think we're in good shape there. Um, and I can say that um, I'm really happy with the people that we got too. How many people came along? Uh, with that I think it was about 100, was it? I'm looking at John. Yeah. And uh, how many people uh, work for digital nowadays? I think around 1,400. Around 1,400. Okay. Yeah. But those were, I mean, the, the, those those two deals, Telex and, and Equicity, are uh, or were 
I think, pretty darn, pretty transformative in the, in the sense that Telus got, got a squarely in the co-location interconnection business, which we weren't before, and the Equicity assets got us into the same business in Europe on a far faster basis than if we had tried to grow the Telex platform overseas. A, a single customer might want, in one location, our large footprint product, what we call scale, but in another location, or even in the same location, you know, suburbs versus downtown, might want the co-location product coupled with interconnection. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's really, uh, it, it, it's called, we, use, we call it our connected campus, but it's important that we're able to offer this uh, this, this richer offering to our customers. I want to talk a little bit about Trump. Tell me about your thoughts on his uh, tax agenda. Um, obviously, he wants to reduce significantly uh, corporate taxes. What effect may that have on, on the data center industry? Yeah, I mean, look, it's something that we obviously monitor closely. But I think it it's, would be premature to uh, offer any opinions on, on what this could mean for our, our industry or our company because it's, uh, it's not clear what, if anything, will, will make it through Congress, uh, especially with uh, the health care reform pending as well, which, which seems to be in some ways a, a single issue because that affects uh, revenues also. So I, I think it's really early to, to speculate what that's going to look like, and I'd rather not do that. I mean, really, our priority right now is, is making sure that we fulfill our customers' needs. That's why we're in business. Another kind of big side of uh, Trump's agenda that, that uh, may have an impact on the, on the data center industry is uh, his administration's stance on renewable energy. They are clearly openly hostile. And uh, the data center industry has been ramping up its investment in renewable energy. That includes you guys. You know, they've, they've already, the administration already kind of started pulling the, the levers, uh, trying to roll back some of the climate uh, regulations that the Obama administration put in place. I believe without the Obama administration's kind of big support uh, for the renewable energy space, perhaps it wouldn't be growing as much as it has. I, I'm personally committed to uh, sustainability initiatives, um, and, and as a result, digital is committed to those sustainability issues. Um, unless engaging in, in, in committing to sustainable power becomes against the law, uh, we'll continue to do that, you know, regardless of uh, the loosening of, of environmental regulations. I think that's uh, obviously good for the environment in which we all live, and I think it's what our customers want as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't see that changing. We're ranked sixth overall by the EPA for consumers of green power. This is a top 30 tech and telecom list, which is pretty good, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, we ranked 12th on the EPA's uh, top 100 list of green power units, users. So I'm, I'm very proud of that because that was a, an initiative that I started when I came on board as the CEO three years ago. Mm. So customers want uh, co-location services, data center services powered by renewable energy. Um, regardless of what uh, the regulations are. I, I would say so. The ball yeah. is kind of rolling in that direction. Right, and we're, as an organization, we're committed to, at some point, being powered by 100% renewable energy in the future. Mm. What effects, if any, has uh, Brexit had on the industry, on your guys' business? Uh, you guys obviously have uh, some 
pretty big assets in, in, in the UK. What, what have been the outcomes so far? You know, what's interesting is that our business, our order book in London picked up post-Brexit. Why is that? Well, maybe because the uncertainty was resolved. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've done quite a bit of business in London post-Brexit. But we've also seen a lot of interest in our uh, non-UK assets, uh, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, and Dublin. Uh, and in fact, we've seen um, our clients looking at doing uh, dual locations, London and, say, Amsterdam, London and Frankfurt, London and Dublin. Is that because they're worried that once the UK becomes uh, a separate entity from the European Union, they will kind of have to have locations in both? Could be. Could uh, be, their hedge, their could be the, that they're hedging their bets. Right. But we, I mean, we're fortunate that we have uh, the ability to meet their needs in all of those markets. But one thing we haven't seen is a uh, decline in demand in London. In fact, I would say it's just the opposite, particularly from, I'd say, the cloud. This year and last year, too, um, but this year especially, analysts are uh, forecasting uh, lots of acquisitions. Uh, lots of assets, lots of data center assets um, on the market. Uh, can you talk about that? Um, how are you guys thinking about uh, these dynamics? Are you looking at, at assets to buy? Which markets are you looking at? We look at everything because, I mean, as our size, we, we see everything. We have three basic criteria for making acquisitions. We want them to be strategic and complementary. So Telex and Equicity are perfect examples of that. We want them to be accretive day one. So at the, moment, the day we close, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd want our FFO per share and AFFO per share to be higher as a result of that acquisition than it was the day before we closed. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, uh, we're not going to increase our leverage to make that, increase, uh, that accretion happen. So um, we say we want to be prudently financed, which is to say we want them to be leverage neutral. In fact, if we can delever, which we did with Equicity, in connection with an acquisition, and still make it accretive, we're very happy to do that. Then that, we were able to do that because there was a lot of demand. Um, but the, the market really liked that transaction, so that when we announced that transaction and we announced the common equity offering at the same time and launched the equity offering, uh, the demand for the offering was overwhelmingly positive. So uh, we sold a lot more equity than we uh, had initially intended to. But in terms of the trends, uh, the data center industry isn't that old. But I would say it's, it's, it is highly fragmented, and it is maturing. And with that will come consolidation. So I think that that is definitely the trend. Are, are there... Um deals on the market that you guys are um, particularly, um, that look particularly attractive to you guys today? Um, on a very uh, selective basis, possibly. We've, we've been <laughs> subsets of portfolios. Pricing is very lofty today. Multiples are very high. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that because there's lots of demand for there's a lot of there's a lot more capital in the space, um, and um, yeah, I mean, if you look at any capital-intensive business, and this 
goes against somewhat what I'd said before about secular demand trends. But there is a, a tendency in any capital intensive business, whether it's, it's real estate, automobiles, or steel, for oversupply to occur. Now, the good news about data centers versus autos and steel is that the demand curve continues to go up. But I think you could have a spike in supply. We certainly had one three or four years ago in selective markets. Um, and when that happens, that's when we think the buying opportunities exist. I see. Especially if it puts stress on the balance sheet of the owner of properties in a market that is oversupplied. So that's, that for us is the perfect time to, uh, to buy. I see. Um, but in terms of, by the way, there, there is one market which I've said publicly that we're not in that I'd like to be in, and that's Tokyo. We, we, did, um, we did build a, a data center in Osaka that's 100% leased. We, we bought the, the land adjacent to that data center, and we'll be building a data center there that's uh, roughly four times the size of the one we did in phase one. And uh, we see quite a bit of demand there at yields that are quite attractive because we're really the only player in that market. Um, but we're, we would like to, to get into Tokyo as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about Tokyo a little bit? What makes it attractive for you guys? It, it just, uh, well, Japan, Japan is the largest data center market in Asia. And Tokyo is probably Tokyo market is probably about three times the size of the Osaka market. I see. As, and Tokyo is the largest market in Japan. Okay, that's all I have. Bill, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Great to uh, see you again. Thank you. This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com.